from KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Exactly. 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 A conversation series in search of a finer point. Now, here's your host, New York Times bestselling author Kelly Corrigan. So it's August. We're out on my deck. I got a whiskey sour in my hand and my little kids are out there in their diapers running around. And I have a sheet wrapped around me. And Edward, my husband, is behind me with an electric razor. Today's the day. Today I have to shave my head. All chemo patients are terrified of this moment. But I have to say, through some divine intervention... Or maybe the whiskey sours. It was not quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. And as soon as he took the first stripe off, the kids started making mustaches and throwing hairballs at each other. And somehow it was clear to me that I was going to be able to breathe after all. I was feeling so good, in fact, that in that moment I vowed I was going to wake up tomorrow and take my kids to school. I didn't expect to feel that good. And I, in fact, had set up carpools for the next two weeks But there I was, Monday morning, putting on my favorite jeans, my favorite button-down, and I kind of whipped this scarf around my head and threw on a lot of mascara and had like a little bit of a Sinead O'Connor thing going. So I kind of busted out the front door, got the girls in their car seats, zoomed over to my neighbors, pulled in the driveway. She opened the front door and said, Kelly, you look so beautiful. And I totally believed her. Just then, while I'm relishing her admiration, before I could even say thank you, her three-year-old, Emma, comes bounding down the stairs in her Dora the Explorer t-shirt and her perfect head of hair and looks at me like my Halloween costume isn't fooling anyone. And before I even know what's happening, she blurts out, you look like a monster. And I'm standing there, frozen. If sweet Emma couldn't control herself, what did I think was going to happen when I got to the preschool and Max and Tyler and Quinn got a load of me? Lori looked over and gave me a little pat on the shoulder and said, I'm so sorry. Do you want me to drive them? And I said, yes, I think you better. I handed her my keys and headed back down the street to our house. So I get in the house and I grab the phone. I flop down on the sofa and call Edward. And he says, hey, how are you? And I say, she said, I look like a monster. And he said, who did? And I said, Emma Lindgren. Emma Lindgren said I look like a monster. And he said, that bitch. I don't know what to say about a man who calls a perfectly adorable three-year-old a bitch, but my hero comes to mind. There's so much truth in comedy, truth and relief. And I mean, honestly, anything that brings people together, puts them in a good mood and whacks them over the head with a bit of insight, that has my full attention. To understand exactly how comedy works, I sat down with B.J. Novak. You probably know him from his work on The Office. He played the character named Ryan, who dated Mindy Kaling's character, Kelly Kapoor. He also wrote a laugh-out-loud book of short fiction called Stories and More Stories. Now, if you're going to talk to somebody 
about the role of comedy in the world, you better know what they think is funny. So I started the interview by trying to locate, if you will, BJ's comedic preferences. And you'll see it pretty quickly gave birth to this great meta conversation, something that happens a lot with Novak. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, the crazy smart BJ Novak. So we're going to talk about this in kind of chunks, but the British Journal of Psychiatry did this study, and they said that comedians, more than the rest of us, and even more than actors, mm -hmm. have a distaste for humanity. Okay. And <laughs> that then, you know, we've all heard it said that great humor comes from minorities, and it's posited because, it's, because they've suffered more. Mm -hmm. And then you have people like Robin Williams, who we know suffered. Um, and then Roald Dahl and, and people like that who have this kind of sweeping distrust of adults. Mm -hmm. But you, as far as I can tell, had a fairly decent childhood. So yeah. how is it that you became a funny person? Um, it's a good question. And it, to me, it, it has caused me to, and maybe this is my own dark uh, perspective on the world, but it has caused me to cast doubt and skepticism and a cloud of negative suspicion over this theory itself. Um, I wonder if, if that's really true because I, I don't, I did not have a particularly dark childhood, although I have dark sides um, and most everyone I know does. But, um, and I, I've read a lot of interviews with uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who I think mm -hmm. is as insightful about comedy. He is even more insightful about comedy than he is funny, in my opinion, which is saying a lot. And he, professes even more than I do, um, and some would say he's funnier, um, but he professes even more than <laughs> not, I do. Not, on, had... our, not <laughs> on our test, though. I didn't know you went that far. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to reveal it yet. You but... know, he talks about a very extremely happy uh, childhood. And Will and... Ferrell talks about a happy childhood. Yeah, so I don't know that it is necessary uh, or always the case, but uh, I think having a, an unusual perspective or um, a, I think skepticism is very important in in a type of comedy that will matter to anyone or connect uh, to anyone. So, what are you skeptical about? I'm skeptical about everything, and I think that. Are you skeptical about this interview right now? Um, well, let's let's keep it. On, no, I'm just. <laughs> um, I, I think looking at everything on, more honestly than other people can seem negative and can seem mm -hmm. dark, but isn't necessarily. I think that. Um, that comedy can often be about, or maybe is always about, an honest uh, recalibration of the way things actually are versus how we've been assuming they are. And mm -hmm. that's kind of funny. That's kind of a shock, a happy shock of insight. Oh, you, we've all been saying this, but of course it's that. Right, right. And I think that can often come from a skepticism, and skepticism can often come from cynicism, but it doesn't need to come from cynicism. So I think you can be an, an optimistic skeptic, a happy skeptic. It might not be as common. But I, Are you I'm, a happy skeptic? I didn't think of it until now, but I think so, yeah. Maybe I that's think I'm the a title of the memoir, and, The Happy Skeptic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that anyone would buy it. But, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, perhaps that's my new theory, perhaps uh, that skepticism tends to correlate with cynicism, yeah. but is not necessarily the same thing. And the skepticism might be the important ingredient. So when you, uh, you know, there's like different possibilities with different mediums, right? You know, you've now worked in television, obviously, and now you've worked in books, both for children and adults. And I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about network TV and what the limitations are and what you felt set free from when you went to write uh, One More Thing. Um, 
I'm very happy to say that I didn't feel uh, that I needed to be free of any censorship or um, any limitations on my writing or imagination on the network TV show that I worked on, The Office. Um, the only limitations were of what would be the mandate of that show, which was to express sort of the honest, believable, uh, observation-based lives of these people who would work in this office, and to pass it off as so close to reality that you might even be watching a documentary if you didn't know better. That was our goal, and to mm -hmm. illuminate the sorts of things that come up in life like that. Um, so when you when you were handed that goal, had you were you already familiar with the? That's how I interpreted the goal. Okay. Um, I, I think correctly, but I, I that's I had seen the British show. I yeah. read the pilot of the American show that Greg Daniels had adapted. And it seemed to me that's what we were doing, and I thought that was great. I thought there was no, I still think there's really no better thing I could think of to put on network TV. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but many, many, many shows, probably the majority of shows, are under a limitation of um, sort of the commercial inheritances of the network and the advertisers, et cetera. Um, so I, I was fortunately not a victim of that, and from the very, very beginning, we tried. Um, I wrote the script for the first original episode of The Office, which was Diversity Day, which I wrote my fantasy of an episode. Um, uh -huh. And uh, Greg loved it. He was the showrunner, and yeah. we filmed it, and it was great, and no one complained, and NBC aired it. And, yeah. um, and so I think right from then, we were like, okay, this is our dream show in terms of that. So I am very lucky in terms of that. I didn't have to be free of sort of the NBC standards department. And you didn't feel like you had to make the characters likable. Like clearly, there's a big difference between the British show and the American show in terms of like likability. Mm -hmm. And and there are just a few, uh, a, a tiny reduction in the number of awkward pauses yeah. and excruciating silences. And I think most people would agree that the American version is sort of easier, yeah. quote unquote, to watch. I think so too. Um, but that wasn't that didn't come down from on high. That wasn't like, look, we need likable characters. We need like a hug in every episode. We need. Um, it did not. It did not come from the network. Yeah. But it was something that um, the show decided mm -hmm. um, that we wanted a show. And when I say we, this is mainly Greg Daniels, who's executive producer and showrunner, yeah. and the trusted people around him, of which I was one, um, wanted a show that would really seduce people into caring about these characters and situations so they would invest more mm -hmm. and they would care more about the romance and they would laugh harder at the, uh, the mistakes that people made. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, it was a dramatic decision and I suppose you could tie it to a commercial decision mm -hmm. but um, that was an organic, that I agreed with that decision. I yeah. thought creatively it was great. That's how you get people to watch a show for eight years and cry at a wedding yeah. and crack up at um, a prank because yeah. you are caring. You're leaning in uh, to yeah. the show and, and caring. So do you have a, um, an episode or a scene or a character that you just love so much? Um, I pretty much loved everybody. Uh, I think that's important as a writer. Um, <laughs> except Ryan. I, it was very hard to love my own character, uh, which is very important as an actor. So that was a challenge. But I really... It's going to sound easy as an answer, but I really loved Michael Scott above all else. And I think that often when you love something, you, there's a tendency to try to choose an obscure 
example to prove your true love. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, if I were to do that, I'd say Toby was my favorite character, because I did love Toby, I love Toby so, so much. Oh my god. But my favorite. Flanderson? Yes. Did you, did you come up with that last no, name? No, Mike sure came up with that name. Sorry. And I thought it was stupid. But I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> no, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's a um, good last name. Uh, and if you watch Parks and Recreation, which Mike went on to create, everyone has a stupid name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying stupid like bad choice. I'm saying no, stupid like fantastically entertaining, ridiculous. fantastically, yeah. you know, slightly askew. Um, but uh, my favorite Sopranos character, which was my favorite show before, um, uh, I was going to say like before The Office. No, probably still my favorite show. Um, my favorite Sopranos character was Tony. Yeah. My favorite Simpsons character is Homer. Yeah. I think often it, the central character is the best character. And I thought Michael Scott had so much love for the world. I know. And it was just contagious. And I it know. made you follow him and root for him unthinkingly. Um, do you think that there are things that are, we had this interesting conversation. We do a little think tank before each of these where we get people together and ask them some questions. And this one guy, Keith, who's back there, said that he thought that the reason why the American office was slightly different than the British office is because the Brits are so comfortable in the, with the class structure thing. They've totally given up on the idea that you could move through, you could move uh -huh. up, um, whereas we aren't. And so we had to soften it a little bit because we really need to believe that just because you start working at a paper company when you're 20 doesn't mean that you're going to leave there when you're 60. That's uh, very interesting. I think there's a lot of, it sounds to me like there's a lot of truth to that. I don't know if it's specifically that is why um, one thing was a certain way instead of another thing, but I do think that is an important difference probably between how Americans would view the general structure of the show and how Brits would. Mm -hmm. um, because I think there was, in the writer's room, I mean, there a lot of things were debated heatedly, and I think there were a lot of instincts, for example, with Jim and Pam, the sort of central relatable characters mm -hmm. of the show, and Tim and Don and the British were their counterparts, there was a strong drive by some writers to see them progress and see them get promoted and see Jim's dream and see mm -hmm. Pam's dream and see maybe they achieve some of them but not others and isn't it so sad if she stays a receptionist? And I think um, that was not necessary to explore in the British. Now also the British was much shorter so perhaps that that's right. so why it wouldn't have come up anyway. But I think that that was a much more American bias towards the show, and one that I, in particular, um, speaking only for myself, did not find necessary to what we were trying to say about mm -hmm. working in an office. I think plenty of noble people um, work in an office, and their dream is to marry the person they're in love with. Mm -hmm. um, and they'd like to be a sports writer, too, but we don't have to see Jim become this, or right. Pam's art uh, become that, in order to think they've lived a successful or a happy life. Um, that was one point of view. That's my point of view. Yeah. Um, there are other writers at various points who didn't see it that way, and that led to interesting debates. Yeah. So then you crossed over and wrote a book where you had you know, this total control over everything, no debates. Yes, yeah. And how'd you like it? Um, I loved it. You did. I did love it. Um, and now there are things that I loved much more about The Office because with The Office you have a team of five to ten writers in general who are working with this incredible canvas that is incomparable to writing a book. Right. And when you write something, and Steve Carell, so huge, you can just go on and on and on. 
Yes, but also you have the talents of Steve Carell or Rain Wilson or Creed Bratton, uh, you know, to bring these colors. Creed's name is Creed? Oh, Creed is Creed. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, this would never stop if I explained what right. was similar. I'm not sure he always knew when we were filming. Right. Um, <laughs> he really seemed like that. Yeah, That's he is just like how that. he seemed. He was perfect. And Phyllis, Phyllis seems like Phyllis. Phyllis is a great actress, though. I'm not saying really? Creed isn't, but Phyllis is doing something. At doing something. Right. Creed is just Zen. That's his art. Um, but you know, you have. Where did they find him then? I mean, that is incredible. Creed? Yeah. Creed was. I've never heard of a promotion structure like this. Creed started as uh, as a stand-in. So when they're lighting someone else, he's mm. the guy that, of the approximate height that stands in front of the light. No He was shit. promoted to, um, to background extra. So if they're like, you know, at a cafe and there's a guy walking by in the background, he was that until we just put him in a chair at the desk. And it was just, we were going to focus on these people in the office, but we weren't necessarily ever going to hear from the people sitting back there. So then he was promoted from stand-in to background. Then he was promoted to guest star. We had an episode where Michael needed to fire someone. And he just like started talking to people. And we're like, all right. And then Creed says, and I, I pitched there, oh, the Creed says this. And I saw Greg get a look on his face like, oh, yeah, Creed could talk, sure. And he was like, OK. And then Creed killed it. He was amazing. We had no idea if he could act. He was great. And then he was promoted to guest star. And then he was promoted to series regular. But I've never, this like, I, I hope in every acting class for the rest of time, like right. they point to Creed Bratton. Yeah. Um, now Creed, decades before this, was the lead singer of the band The Grassroots. So Creed has had a life. Yeah. Creed has had a life. Yeah. yeah. We're going to have him come next. We're going to have Creed. I had dinner with Creed next. once. And uh, I asked him, I, I looked this up. I don't think I could find the town which is also very creed, but I said, um, he's, I asked him where he was from. Did he say he was from? He's, he That's said, so uh, I'm from a town in California, uh, up the like Sierra or something, or up some river. It's called uh, Coarse Gold. And then uh, they call it that because during the gold rush, that's where the coarse gold was. And then down the river is a town called Fine Gold. This is like a story from another century. And I think I looked it up and I was like, I don't see coarse yeah. gold. I don't know if it's still called that. Dude, he's from Ohio. Yeah. It's just part of his thing. Yeah, he has lived a life already. Oh um, my god. But I, we had a, something we are talking about. Oh, my point was writing a book. So you have these colors. You can reach millions of people. You have help writing yeah. it. You have all these actors. You can touch people uh, so close to their core from uh, broadcasting it this way. Uh, so I'm not saying writing a book is better. Um, it's inferior in those ways. Where it was very um, fulfilling for me as a writer was being the final say in everything, and also creatively being able to write um, situations and characters and jokes that I couldn't have tried to pass off as something that would happen right. even to Creed. You know? right, right, right. So that, that's what the book got to be for me. And to learn what my voice was, because when I was hired on The Office, I was so excited. Because from what I understood about the show, so it was exactly. Were you like exactly, working at Punked or something? Uh, I was, that was my most recent job before Did The Office. Did you know office. that, that he worked at Punked? Prankster on Punked, yeah. yeah. And a stand-up comic. Um, when I was hired for that show, the Office, it was so exciting to me because it was almost identical, I felt, to what I felt my voice was. I was like, that's exactly, I'd seen mm -hmm. the British. And by the time it had ended, I wasn't sure. You know, I had grown by eight years, 
Um, but I had been writing in this voice in the same room for these same characters in the same office for eight or nine years as one voice right. throwing out you know three jokes a minute and one of them gets used a day. You know? So to be able to write a book was very important to me just to know who the hell I was um, as a writer. And now that I know, again, I'm excited to take that into the things I do next. What's this, something that someone said about the book that you felt like, oh, that's exactly what I was hoping for? Like, that, that's sort of spot on for what I was going for. Well, when we were backstage and you showed me the book and you just underlined things, that, oh. that went right to my heart, you know? Oh, Every time. I, I know what that experience. You stop it. You just stop it right now. <laughs> I know what that experience is as a reader. My husband is here. Yeah. Um, but that kind I mean, of thing. I'm stuck, baby. I'm stuck. Yeah. I can't. If you want this to go viral, you need to make a bold move. I'm just saying. Kiss Remember me. where your bread is buttered. And we're out. Um, okay. I You'll don't never even... believe what happened at this interview. And apparently, her husband like works there, <laughs> and she just leaned over and kissed him. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Back to the script. Um, did you just say do it? They work here. They want uh, this to yeah. be huge. Um, what okay. will Kelly Kapoor say? <laughs> yeah. I know how to write these headlines. Yeah. I know what I'd click on. Uh, now we have to go back to this. I don't know. Um, so another thing I wanted to talk about is uh, things that are t that are taboo that you're not really supposed to laugh at, and and then people you <laughs> like leaving your husband impulsively. <laughs> um, like for to instance? take an example from the past five seconds. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like what? So like if you were to say you know. Uh, we're selling tickets to a talk on soaring obesity rates, sexism, and small penises. Every chair would be empty. But if you oh, say, I don't know about that. <laughs> but if you say like Ricky Gervais or Chris Rock's coming to town, yeah, lying around the block. So why is that? Why can you do anything with comedy and the limitations are so much greater? I don't quite understand. In the first very interesting sounding seminar, yes, this is a. There's no humor in this. Right, it's just a talk. It sounded pretty funny. <laughs> Maybe that's the dark side. Um, but I, to be honest, though, if those comedians, if, if, if you said, I just saw Ricky Gervais and Chris Rock perform live, and I said, oh, what, what kind of material do they do? And you said, oh, well, they talked. It, it was really honest stuff about obesity and having a small penis. You'd be like, oh, is it going to be on HBO? You know, that, that is what we want to hear from, from comedians. Right. Is the taboo, right? Well, what about the more taboo, like super taboo? Like in the top of the thing, I talked about the Civil War and like these kind of. Too soon. <laughs> I, I have to. I have to draw the line there. I'm... Oh my god! The country is still. No, I know. It's a lot of pain. A lot of pain. A lot of people's great, 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 great. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Tig Notaro thing. Did you hear about that Tig Notaro yeah. thing? Yeah. So have you guys ever heard of Tig Notaro? She, she, you have. She's a comedian, and she was doing stand-up, and she was scheduled to go on that night. And earlier in the day, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she decided to just go ahead and do it. 
And Louis C.K. said this, he was there, and he said, the show was an amazing example of what comedy can be. Tig took us to a scary place and made us laugh, not by distracting us from the terror, but by looking right at it. She proved that everything is funny and has to be. That's a great statement, yeah. Is everything funny? Um, I think everything is funny if you approach it uh, the right way. If you approach it head on, and I think, I wasn't at that TIG show that I've heard so much about, but it, it, from what I hear, she approached something that, you know, it's like driving a car through the narrowest tunnel, and, and if you're able, if you have to take on a, a diagnosis of cancer that day, you better be a f like NASCAR driver to be mm -hmm. able to, to navigate that. But if you are, if you have that speed and agility and power, then you can do something brilliant. And, and I don't think a casual uh, first-timer uh, or someone without uh, much bravery could necessarily make that funny. It probably takes a lot. But if you are that great, uh, and I've seen Tig and she is great, then I'm sure that's the kind of, that's the kind of challenge that can make you a legend. So I, I do think every experience has something funny in it, no matter how dark. But it can be near impossible to get it if it is too dark, and you need to be near perfect in your power to be able to access it. And it sounds like she was. Have you ever uh, totally bombed trying to do something that was a little too tight a tunnel, so to speak? Uh, that's what she said. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I knew. Tight. Yeah. I knew, I knew there was going to be a problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I, sure, I. The first time I did stand up was shortly after 9/11, um, and it was all my jokes were about 9/11. This is October 10th, 2001, um, and I did not do very well, and I shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't a good comic. Um, I didn't really know what. Do you remember how to one do of it? Them? Um, I do you probably want to die right here in front of us? Yeah, I probably erased it on purpose. Um, I, 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 I will share if I remember it. I don't at the moment. But I do remember doing that and thinking, what went wrong? Um, <laughs> you know, if I had something important to say, you know, Louis C.K., I saw him uh, right after 9-11 at Largo in LA. And he said, I'm going to botch it. But it was something like, um, I think you can tell how good a person you are or how much integrity you have by um, how long you waited to masturbate after <laughs> the 9-11 attacks. For me, it was sometime between when the first tower fell. <laughs> that was funny. I mean, you couldn't believe, you but know, that, that someone. I would say, I mean, not. That was a master comedian. You know? Yes, master. Yeah. Um, uh, Do not attempt at home. And that right. was the lesson, yeah. But I would say. I mean, not to push back, but I would say that that's a joke about Louis C.K. being a pig, not about 9-11. Well, And therefore, I don't think that everything can be funny. I mean, I do think there's taboo stuff that there's probably that nobody can thread the needle on. Um, I, <laughs> think it, I think we'd be getting into a territory where you're parsing the difference between the infinite and the finite, impossible and impossible. I, I probably agree with you more or less. In general, is this but, our first fight? I'm no, I'm just saying, baby. <laughs> Did it, um, didn't it seem like the energy changed? And maybe I mean, it, not, we're it not literally might be anymore? a question of, you know, if you had a, a topic of infinite.
taboo, yes. but you had a comic of infinite talent, could that comedian make that funny? My answer is yes. So in, while we're in this space, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Dave Chappelle thing, which is, um, you know, it's the first person in history to walk away from $50 million. And I heard him once talking about it, and he said that something shifted where he was trying to joke about the pea brains of racists. And somehow he started to feel like maybe he was validating the racists, that the racists were laughing the hardest at his work. And so I wonder if it's, it can be super problematic to put something like that out there f for him and then have to like kind of leave his whole career, career behind. Uh, I, I can't speak for him or either what he saw or what, how important it was to him. So I don't know. Um, but I think that whatever you do, a lot of people will interpret it a lot of different ways. There may well have been racist people that thought his caricatures were validating their worldview. Um, that happens also in literature. It happens in a lot of forms. And right. I think if you don't like what your work is doing, it's your right to not do it. Um, yeah. I don't know that I would personally, but I've never been in a situation either where the material was that um, dangerous or where that many people were reacting that strongly to it. So I guess I can't honestly yeah. answer without having experienced it. Yeah. But in my much smaller world, I approach it with, well, I know what I'm doing, I know who I'm doing it for. Um, and if the audience but doesn't no, I, go I with felt it, bad. if you lose your audience and they walk away with a completely different take on it, no, I this guess, is the risk you know, you take, now, right? now that we're actually playing it out, I, I, I don't, I'm not a purist in that way. I mean, I, I see my purpose is to, uh, as an entertainer is to entertain as many people as much or as deeply as possible. And if I feel that that is not having that desired effect, I would probably stop mm -hmm. um, doing whatever that was. It, there's no, you know, if a tree fell in a forest uh, right. thing for me where it's about, uh, it doesn't make, to right, me, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make yeah. sense in entertainment yeah. because the purpose is entertaining sort of a, a, another person. So. I know, and people always say this with writing. They say, oh, you would, you know, yeah, I would write this book even if no one read it. No, I never. Think, that is absurd. Absurd. What a dumb idea that is. Yeah. <laughs> you know how hard it is to write a book? Yeah. Of course you want people to read it. Yeah. But there's like this, that you have to act like you don't. Do you ever feel that? that it is sort of the like... more artistic position to take. Right? Um, <laughs> no, I, I relate to it 0%. OK, good. <laughs> So I feel like we're back together now. Yeah. Yeah. OK, good. You're listening to Exactly on KQED Public Radio. We'll be back after a break. This program was recorded live at the San Francisco offices of Medium the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you're enjoying this conversation, check out my interview with musician Matt Nathanson. I want to be that person that writes so many songs that we have this like unbelievable amount to choose from and be like, that one's real good or that one's, and it's like, it just isn't that way. I, my assassin is stronger than my creative self. That's Matt Nathanson on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly, or on iTunes. Welcome back to Exactly. I'm Kelly Corrigan talking with actor and writer B.J. Novak. 
I also want to talk about the timing of humor, which we started to talk about. Um, but have you heard of this app that tells you, you can, you can put in a tragedy and it will tell you how many days you have to wait to make a joke about it? Are you pitching this? <laughs> I don't know of anyone. What do you think? Yeah. Um, thumbs up, thumbs down. Loser. I, I've not heard of this app. Do you have a sense of like timing around joking about stuff? Yeah. Um, I thought the Civil War was, you know, right. wrong on your part um, to bring up. No, I, I, yeah, of course I have a sense of it. It, de it depends who your audience is and what the context is. And I think that's why it can be hard for someone. If you're at Dave Chappelle's level that he was at that moment, uh, there may be so many people reacting so intensely that any one or any 1,000 can just be too much for you uh, in that mm -hmm. one direction. So I understand that. Mm -hmm. um, but. So I think it is hard, yeah, one-on-one, -on -one, I think I would, or even in a room like this, I think I would have a good sense of what, what joke is not right to say or, or why or when. I would have a sense of that. But if you were broadcasting this and playing it all over the world, I would lose a lot of that sense, to right, be honest. Right. Is there a time that you can remember somebody cracking a joke after a tragedy that totally relieved you? Like, that did you the service that you're probably now doing for others? I, that's a great question. I, not, the one that comes to mind to me is what someone else cited, which I agreed with, which was after 9-11. There was the Comedy Central roast of Hugh Hefner. Uh -huh. And Gilbert Gottfried got up. I, Frank Rich, someone wrote about this. And I, I thought something similar, but he was very articulate about it. That Gilbert Gottfried telling jokes about Hugh Hefner um, just with all of his heart uh, was very cathartic because it was so small in the face of this, but it was with so much gusto and uh, and skill at something so irrelevant right. uh, that it was exhilarating. Yeah, uh, that's how I remember that being recounted. Yeah, and I I thought so too back at that time. Yeah. Um, Are you the guy that, like, during a tough situation, if you were visiting someone in the hospital or at a funeral or something, would you be the guy that has that kind of arena instinct interpersonally to know when a joke is needed? Uh, yeah, I think any good comedian, that would be a better than average skill of theirs, but it's not. There are some people that it's a compulsion. Um, yes. That's, that's not me. Yeah. That's my friend Bob Saget. Uh. <laughs> and you love him for it. Yeah. But it's not like he knew, oh, he knew that I needed to laugh. It's like, no, he, that's just Bob. Right. Um, and there are comedians like that. Yeah. Um, and, and they're great for that, but that's just their nature. So I think I have a good sense of it, but it's not like I'm the guy that will always. And did you, know. were you one of those funny people who grew up? Jeff Ross is great at that. Jeff yeah. Ross is a comedian that I would want at a tragedy. Uh huh. I, yeah. Because he, that is his instinct, but he is a, he is very good interpersonal senses of when to say what. And were you a kid when you were younger who knew how to lighten the mood in your house? Again, my house, well I grew up in a pretty happy house, so. Really? Like there was never a mood to lighten in your house? What kind of childhood is this? No, I don't know. But there was never a mood that, like, well, it's on you, buddy. Like, yeah. I don't know. Someone else will lighten the mood, whatever. Um, okay. Uh. I was l lazy at my calling, I guess. Let mom cry. Who gives a f um, No. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah. There you go. Um, okay, uh, let's play a game called BJ Novak, Why Is This Funny? 
Okay. Uh, I was reading uh, George Meyer, the longtime writer for The Simpsons, and he described marriage thusly. A stagnant cauldron of fermented resentments, <laughs> scarred and judgmental conformity, exaggerated concern for the children, dull weekends in Santa Barbara, and the secret... <laughs> and the harder you laugh, yeah. And the secret dredging up of erotic images from past lovers <laughs> in a desperate and heartbreaking attempt to make spousal sex even possible. <laughs> Why is that so funny? I think that is funny because there is a, um, a shock of recognition and catharsis. Uh, no, take out catharsis. That's too trite. There's a shock of recognition uh, when you say something that was in plain sight but that had not been pointed out. So this is maybe a comic exaggeration to jar people with, so. this, um, with this idea. But the idea probably has truth to it. There's probably times, I've not been in a marriage, but I'm sure that there are times when all of these things are true in some way and you don't say it out loud for whatever reason. And so when it is The said dredging aloud, up of the erotic images. Yeah. It's just not it's not something people discuss. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was at a comedy club at, in the Laugh Factory in LA with an ex-girlfriend who had to like be carried out of the club <laughs> with something a comic said about hooking up with an ex and looking at him the next day looking through him. It wasn't I can't, I'm not even telling the joke, I'm just telling you the general area. So I know yeah. yeah, you laugh when it's like, there's a shock of recognition, yeah. I think. That's the pleasure. Also, I think there's like the fine thing. I think it's like really And the poetry. darker it is, the less likely that it has been commented on. So that it's yes, more likely yes, it is so to, be, to be fresh. Yeah. yeah. And there's also like the, um, just like the poetic pieces of it, like these words, like, you know, lurches and yeah. stagnant cauldron. And yeah. it's just like It's good language. Really it's also a surprise, too. You don't hear words to such a passionate extreme of negativity yeah. Yeah. about a marriage, and that's funny too. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about evolution and also the evolution of comedy. So the evolutionists say that we can see laughing and teeth bearing in primates and that it looks just like laughter, and it's like a fear response. Okay. And then they also say that it's often treated as a proxy for intelligence, so that um, funny men are assumed to be very smart, are you feeling it? Yeah, I've felt it my whole life. I'm so, so grateful for this collective assumption. Yeah. I can't even tell you. And that that makes you more attractive to women. But women, uh, funny women, I mean, not to point to myself, but I think I'm fairly amusing. Um, it is also recognized as a sign of intelligence, but it's not a, a, a trait that men are looking for. And so funny women are often um, have a little bit harder time with the, uh, the dating stuff. Okay. So you're a single dude. Mm -hmm. Do you like funny women? Yeah. <laughs> I do. I might be. Now would be the kiss moment, right? <laughs> People are shipping this. Because um, I know there are different experiments about arousal. Some of them measure you physiologically versus the survey response. Perhaps uh -huh. men don't think they want a funny woman, but are like, really? They watch Seinfeld, and they see Elaine, yeah. and they're like, that would be kind of fun. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> like, what they report versus 
I mean, and yeah, so, let me Elaine from Seinfeld is like a dream girl to me. Dream girl, and yeah. even more, I think Selena Myers from uh, Veep. She's really hot, Veep? I guess. Is kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so if Sarah Silverman were a man, and she did her act, same act verbatim, yeah, how do you think it would be received? Really well. What do you mean? I was just thinking that part of what's so crazy about her is that she's a woman saying what she's saying, and I that think, if a man sure. were to say it, it would be kind of less impressive or less unusual. I, I know her mind enough to know that if that a large part of what she is doing is knowing what would be funny in the context of this is this person in front of this right. audience in front of this microphone. If I said this, that would be very funny. Right. Um, so I'm sure that she would adapt if she were a 400-pound black man. I'm sure that she would adapt with the same intelligence right. and the same observations into a way that it was just aesthetically and intellectually interesting and, and enjoyable that she was doing that. I think it's she's not ignorant of right. how she's coming across. That's part of show business. Right, right. It's like, oh, you see this, and here's what I'm going to do with what I have. Right. To and, be what, funny. and it's and that's but all about expectations, an, right? Because as soon as you see someone step onto a stage, you have this like un, probably unrecognized set of expectations that immediately start bubbling up about yeah. this person and what they would say and what they wouldn't say and what their interests are and what their background right. is. Right. But I, I think she's in full control of it. Yeah. I think that's good. And so, um, how much? What? How big a factor is surprise? Extreme. I think it's the biggest factor, and I think it connects to every other factor uh, that I can think of in comedy, or just about every other factor, because I think that um, comedy is about the uh, the art of surprise with the obvious, and I think comedy is like a great joke it works the same way that a great um, a great piece of comedy works the same way a great mystery works, where you get to the, the conclusion and you're mm -hmm. like, oh my god, that's so obvious and I never would have thought of it in a million years. Right, but it's um, still fair game, like it's, it's legit. Yeah, that to me is, is what best comedy does, is of course that would happen, right. I, I never would have thought of that in a million right. years. So to me, it, it's, that is about surprise, what you can do with surprise. Um, I, I think it's, Everything, and I think it's why the dark side is so funny, in many, if not most, if not all, of the situations in which the darkness of something is what is so funny about it, is because you never hear marriage talked about in poetically intense language, uh, expressing pure negativity. Right. That's a surprise. Right. Um, that's why that's that's funny. Yeah. Okay. If that same language were expressing something positive. It, Just be it would be cute or sweet. Yeah. No, it would be good. It's a good writing, but it would not be. F we wouldn't even. It wouldn't even occur to us to, to judge it as whether or not it's funny. Right. It would right. just be a love poem. You know. Right. The surprise is the darkness in right. so many cases. Right. And I think that the shock, at some point, then becomes about positivity, or gentleness. And I think that's often a color that we used on the office, that. I found very useful, and also in my book, a lot of the stories, just when you think it's gonna have a dark ending, I thought the most rebellious thing mm -hmm. to do would be to have it all work out. Mm -hmm. um, there's a story called Kate Moss that has mm -hmm. the happiest ending I could imagine. Mm -hmm. um, a girl stares at pictures of Kate, I won't spoil it, it's like this long, but um, that's what she said. So, um, but um, I think if, if things got too dark or grotesque, I think, 
then the, the shock of relief would be, oh yeah, life can be that simple sometimes, and that would be insightful. And then the next thing would come up to, um, to observe. And to a certain extent, it's just, I think, comedy, saying something honest about something new in the world can always uh, provide new comedy. I think the, the trap of that is when, and I generally am a fan of Bill Maher, but you, you can see certain joke structures sometimes with a guy like that where you, you know that this joke structure of, and the other guy said this, or mm -hmm. like, and that was what they said about, you know, Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. Just like, occasionally the structures need updating too. But a lot of it, and that's where I would say sort of the shock of surprise being something positive could come in. But most of it is just like, the, the shock of honesty about such crazy new things, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's sort of like a, I bet it's like a pendulum, right? Where you have like Modern Family, and now the yeah, next also great another, comedy is going to be way darker. Or and then, another big swing isn't just between dark and light, but between observational and absurdism. So if a show came out that just uh, like Arrested Development or something. Like yeah, that. or like stuff on Adult Swim or uh -huh. Too Many Cooks. You know, that <laughs> that can be a swing from the Modern Family right. world into something just outrageously. Um, sort of meta or absurd. And then it can, you know, so there are a lot of sort of corrections that can keep happening, I think. Although it's probably not the same viewer, right? So like, I, was, I, I was thinking, yeah. you know, like the, the Modern Family viewer is going to go to the next Modern Family. Probably. And then the Zach Galifianakis is Between Two Ferns guy is right. going to go to the next. Um, yeah, but Between Two Ferns isn't very uh, dirty. But it's no. still shocking, and yeah. still like, how do you how do you progress past that? Right. Well, you can't get simpler than right. that set, <laughs> and blunter, yeah, blunter than those questions. But right. then you find some other way to take it to another level. Right. So, what do you th what, what do you think about the evolution of comedy? Like, how does how does like I Love Lucy lead to All in the Family, which leads to Seinfeld, which leads to the office. I think it's about largely surprise. Again, if you've seen I Love Lucy, uh -huh. the next show wouldn't be like I Love Lucy exactly. It would be, oh my god, I can't believe they did All in the Family. Like, that is not I Love Lucy, my friend. You know, <laughs> that's funny. Um, and then Seinfeld, too, it was, um, it was, oh, these people talk the way we talk. Like, yeah. that's funny, and that's different than other people. These people are very worked up over um, you know, the cordless portable phone, right. um, which had not been done. That was a surprise. Right. Um, so I, I think surprise is a huge factor in the evolution of comedy. You keep getting used to things, and then... And, then and I think also, as the society that we need comedy to comment on moves forward, it would naturally follow that the comments on that evolve along with it. So right. now if they're cell phones, the next comedy would be, right. you know... You're a technologically adept crowd. You remember that transition. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, well, that, that takes that me to my, my sort of big question, which is, what is it? What can comedy do that nothing else can? Um, I think comedy can relieve us with a visceral insight. It can be a. It can be a physiological relief to have an insight. Mm -hmm. um, I guess you can feel that in therapy, and it's not funny. So maybe that's not unique to comedy. <laughs> but um, I do think that is something close to unique yeah. about comedy. Well, it can also, I mean, you know. You can tell a truth in a pleasurable 
Um, you can tell uh, you can tell a dark truth in a pleasurable way yeah. with comedy, and I think that's probably unique. A unique uh, something that comedy can uniquely do. It's also there's a receptivity, right? Like so, you're if someone were to sit you down and talk about racism, you would have or sexism or whatever you would have. Yeah, I would this not look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, you would have this oppositional positioning, right? It's like an intellectual conversation. Well, it definitely sounds like you did something wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to sit down with you and talk about sexism. Um, sure. Is this about something in particular, or yeah? Is this about Sarah? Because I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that there's this openness, like that we're more porous, right? Because you're so loosened up emotionally when you're experiencing comedy that then you can slide something in in that moment that you might be able to. Oh. I didn't ask for these. I mean, you got to make it hard. That's what she said. I mean, I just feel so tongue-tied. I feel like there's literally nothing there, I can say. There's an extra challenge to interviewing someone who was on The Office, because yeah. they, you can always go to that, and everyone's like, ah, it's a catchphrase. So I, I feel for you. You're... Thank you. So we end every interview with seven questions. We ask every guest, what song have you listened to more than any other? I know this from my top 25 played. Um, it's 212 oh. by Zaley Banks. How does it go? I don't even know it. <laughs> if you had a year to get really good at something, what would you try? Piano. Oh. Uh, who do people say you look just like? Um, a quarterback named Aaron Rodgers. Really? Um, yeah. And the only person I'm ever mistaken for is Seth Meyers. About a couple times a year, I'm given a compliment on something that Seth Meyers has done. And do you, what do you do? You just take it? I say thank you. Yeah. Um, if your mother wrote a book about you, what would it be called? Now I'm trying to think, like, <laughs> you you probably do the same thing. You're like, well, who am I selling this book to? Right. Um, where, how are they marketing it? Where right. is it in Barnes & Noble? Um, something like um, your ambition. His ambition makes me anxious. Um, but I'm so proud. <laughs> oh my God. Um, what would you like to see fixed in your lifetime? I have a, a serious specific answer. I would like to see fixed in my lifetime the gap between our very major and admirable instinct to help people and the very minor part of our life that it is. Um, and I think there's got to be a great way to harness the, um, the enormous charitable instinct within people that can be easily manipulated if you are sitting this close to someone mm -hmm. and uh, is almost evaporates once you're more than 10 feet from somebody, mm -hmm. um, even if it's just as important or far more important. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a way to fix that. And I think it, it, that's what I'd like, I'd like to see fixed. And someone else can do global warming and all that. Yeah. But that, that would be, that's what I'd like to see fixed. If everyone on Earth could kill one person with no repercussions. Toby. <laughs> would you be killed? Oh, yeah, easy. By whom and why? By Mindy Kaling. <laughs> um, for she wouldn't even have a reason yet. <laughs> She'd just say TBD. <laughs>
What's the worst job you ever had? I never had a bad job. Ugh. <laughs> Make something up. You know how many times I've been asked what my worst job ever is? Having oh. worked on the No, it's not you. It's having oh, worked on the you. office. And I'm like, yeah. I don't Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I worked in a restaurant. I liked it. It was all great. All right, yeah. all right. If you could say four words to anyone, whom would you address and what would you say? Um, you say that's hard? That is hard, isn't it? What did the last person say? You know what she said, Mary Roach yeah. said? I would say to my 16-year-old self, you were really pretty. Oh, my god. <laughs> Isn't that moving? And you, know what, and you know what Lena Dunham said? Oh, no. It was brilliant, too. It was what? so great. She goes, I think I would like say to Virginia Woolf, what's up with you? <laughs> OK. I would say to Shakespeare, uh -huh. Great. loved Comedy of Errors. Because I bet he was insecure about like the first thing he did. <laughs> and you always, as an author, you always, as an author, love when someone praises something obscure of yours, right? Oh, totally. You read that? You, you know, read yeah. Lift? Oh, my oh, god. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more than like when someone's like, love the office. I'm like, thank you. But yeah. it's not like, no, yeah. you know. Tell me it's like so more. personal when they yeah. love something really. All right, I think that's it. Do you want to end with a short reading? I would love for people to hear you read a sure. little section. Sure, I can read Kate Moss, The Happy Ending. OK. So this is, thank you, sir. <laughs> so there are 64 stories in the book. Some are very short. Um, and this is one of the shorter ones, not the shortest. Um, and there, you know, it's fiction, so there's different narrators, and um, some of them are female. I say that just because I can't do a costume change before the story. Um, there it is. This is called Kate Moss, the one we were just talking about. When I was 16, I would come home from school every day and stare at pictures of Kate Moss for hours. Then one day, on a school trip to New York, I saw Kate Moss. I went up to her and pulled her coat. Are you Kate Moss? I said, of course, she said. How did you become Kate Moss? <laughs> she moved her face close to mine and smiled and whispered. Every day, she said, when I came home from school, I would stare at pictures of Kate Moss for hours <laughs> until one day I was Kate Moss. How many hours? Four. When I went back home, I tried staring at photos of Kate Moss for four hours a day. Now I'm Kate Moss. <laughs> So besides falling a little bit in love with B.J. Novak, here's where I came out on the big questions. And, and this, I should say, is partially informed by conversations with Jason Siegel and John Cleese, which you can hear on our podcast. Okay, here it is. Comedy has a unique opportunity to put ugly, even horrific things in front of us and make us look much longer than we would, say, watch a newscast or a documentary. I mean, I'm pretty sure more people have watched Louis C.K. than Bowling for Columbine or 60 Minutes. In the same way, comedy can show us our own worst flaws. 
I mean, we would fire a therapist who described our marriage or our office or our family the way a comedian does, even if it's spot on. What follows, emotionally speaking, from those shameful moments of recognition is this powerful, sweeping relief. Because if everyone's laughing, that means everyone relates. And that means everyone has work to do. And that's exactly what I took away from my conversation with BJ Novak. Great to have you along for the ride. This is Exactly, produced at KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The program was recorded live at Medium, the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you got a kick out of this conversation, please check out my talk with iconic writer Margaret Atwood about the planet and the future of the arts and women. If you're a woman leader in a power structure that's still basically male, usually what happens is that you have to show that you're a better man than they are, mm-hmm. and you're quite frequently tougher and meaner. You can hear more from Margaret Atwood and other authors on our podcast, kqed.org exactly, or on iTunes. Thanks to our team, producers Kat Snow, Anna Adlerstein, coordinating producer Melissa Williams, engineer Jim Bennett, production manager Jennifer Harrison, and executive producer Michael Issop. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Thank you so much for listening, and please do be in touch. Thank you.